What a strange, odd Holy Week. I don't think I've ever done a Holy Week like this. <laughs> and I may never do a Holy Week like this again. But thus it begins, okay? We're beginning to shadow Jesus as close as we possibly can right now. We're trying to walk where he walked. We're trying to follow along beside him as a disciple. We're in seeking to, and I said this last year, and I'll probably do it every single Palm Sunday, we're seeking to inhabit the Holy Week story, to inhabit the story. Now, some of you are asking, how do we do that? Uh, the short answer is, well, we stay in the biblical text and we, and we use our imaginations. But let me give you uh, a couple of ways to do this, how we inhabit the story. First way, uh, look for yourself in the crowds and characters that we come across in all the stories, okay, that we encounter. We're going to stumble across an awful lot of them this week in Holy Week. So consider what it means to be an enemy of Jesus in certain moments. Consider what it means to be a struggling disciple of Jesus. Consider what it means to be like a curious, intrigued onlooker, maybe who doesn't quite get involved with what's going on, but rather admires Jesus from a safe distance. There are a lot of perspectives that come about in Holy Week. Um, and I would encourage you to be unflinchingly honest as Holy Week unfolds. Uh, look at it like the crowds and maybe even some closer to Jesus. Uh, perhaps we need to admit that Jesus is not all we expected him to be, right? Um, you might experience some rage, some disappointment, some confusion, or whatever you need to experience when Jesus violates your expectations and doesn't act as you'd hoped. So who are you in this story? Find yourself in these characters. So that's the first way to have the story. There's a second way too, and it's the other essential. And it seems like an opposite of this. And it kind of is, don't get lost in the crowd. Look for Jesus. And what I mean by that is imagine what Holy Week was like for him. So put yourself in his sandals. So we're not just journeying with him. We're trying to see and experience this week through his eyes. So that's the other call. So we need to hold on to those two essential uh, perspectives, I think. So if we do that, if we find ourselves in the characters that we come across, and also keep our eyes on Jesus, imagining what it was like for him, um, then I think we're going to begin to see what I call, uh, I don't know, the great divide. And here's what I mean. There is a gap between God's plan for salvation and humanity's plan for rescue. It becomes really clear the longer we move into Holy Week, these contrasting perspectives. God's ways aren't our ways. And that's where the great rub lies in Holy Week. So, those two things, find yourself in the characters, put yourself in Jesus's shoes and imagine what it was like for him. So inhabit the Holy Week story, inhabit the story. If you don't remember anything, please remember that. So today is our threshold into Holy Week. And it's quite a doorway that we've walked through, really. I mean, these are, these are the final steps of Jesus's earthly ministry, final things. And the first steps begin with those shouts of acclamation that we just did. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. So we're going to reflect upon um, the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, which we just heard. And I just mainly want to paint the picture and try as best I can from a distance, a safe distance, to sort of thrust us into that story and put us in the midst of all that is going on at that time, okay? So uh, as Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem, they are part of hundreds 
probably thousands of other Galilean pilgrims who are making their way to Jerusalem by the same route, okay? It is Passover. It is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as it's called. Uh, and it's one of the three big feasts that Jews would uh, make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was probably the biggest of the three, probably the most well-attended. Now, Jerusalem, which means, ironically, city of peace, city of shalom, this is not a city that has welcomed Jesus uh, in the past. <laughs> in fact, the holy city has caused Jesus a lot of grief up to this point. Jerusalem, excuse me, it's the place Jesus weeps over in, in Luke's gospel account of the triumphal entry. Jerusalem, if you only knew what would bring you peace, Jesus says. So prophetically, Jesus foresees the destruction of the temple and, and all that lies ahead. But as the crowning jewel, as the capital city of God's chosen people, it's the place for a king to claim his rule. Jesus knows this. Okay. So he enters Jerusalem via Bethphage uh, on the Mount of Olives, which to most of us, we don't know the geography. I've never been to Jerusalem personally. Uh, it's, this place is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's about two miles outside of town. Some prophecies suggested the Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives, okay? About a millennia earlier, King David had journeyed back to Jerusalem. He reclaimed his kingship and his kingdom via the Mount of Olives. This is 2 Samuel 15. David also rolled in, rode in a colt, donkey, foal, uh, however the translations read, to enter the city. Okay? So it's no coincidence that David's return to the holy city directly foreshadows Jesus' own triumphal entry into Jerusalem, okay? This is one of those divine echoes that God is quite fond of, from Old Testament to New. And about that donkey or colt or foal, your translations vary there probably, it is not a stray detail. It's actually the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. So check this out. Jesus has already walked all the way from Galilee. He's already walked all that way. There's no real need to ride a beast of burden for these last two miles, is there? Not really. But there's more going on than meets the eye here. Uh, and I wonder if anyone in the crowds noticed this or took notice of this. So uh, the sons of the judges, they would use colts or donkeys sometimes. David's donkey was used uh, at the coronation of Solomon, another king. Hmm, interesting detail. Sorry, someone wants to join the meeting. And now they have. It's no mistake that Jesus comes in on this donkey, this colt, this bull, however you want to read that. Uh, a kingly image? Yes, it is. But more importantly, this is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of peace. If you came as a military conqueror, you rode in on guess what? Not a donkey. You came in on a horse, always. Many seem to miss this critical symbol when Jesus comes in. There's no war horse here. He comes to all of humanity, past, present, future, to those who are his enemies, to those whose judgment he would bear as the Prince of Peace. What kind of king is this exactly? Well, Jesus is telling us right off the bat that he is humble and he's meek. His disciples' uh, cloaks, uh, that serves as his saddle, probably reinforcing poverty. Uh, they're not people of means. There's nothing remarkable in terms of this king and his court, in terms of their appearance. No regalia, no holy vestments, no royal vestments. He's accompanied only by these everyday disciples. That's his entourage. Very humble. 
And as for the crowds, they lay their cloaks on the ground, right? You're familiar with a lot of these details. This is simply an act of homage and submission. They're recognizing some measure of Jesus's authority here. They're recognizing him as some sort of authority figure. Many, no doubt, thought him to be a deliverer, some sort of uh, Messiah, this king. Otherwise, why are they saying, Hosanna to the son of David? Son of David's a messianic expression. And as we did, they're waving these palm branches. These are symbols of victory, symbols of triumph. Uh, think of those pictures you've seen of those ticker tape parades welcoming soldiers home in World War II. Just massive, similar symbols of victory. Those palm branches tell us that the crowd sees him maybe as an upstart revolutionary, possible, maybe a military or political messiah. Now, the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, as you read all the gospel accounts and you kind of compile them, the crowd builds. So it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, okay? And from the various gospel accounts, I've kind of pieced them together. Here's what we know about the crowd and the multitudes that are building. Here's the things we know for sure. Um, massive, massive throngs of people. Again, during Passover, uh, the population of Jerusalem just swells incredibly during this time. And his entry, I mean, it, make no mistake, it's an event. I mean, it is a true spectacle. So massive amounts of people, a spectacle. Now, of the crowd, what we can say too, there are people of all stripes here, people of all stripes, but most of them probably poor, okay? It fits the overall demographic that day and age. Uh, there's some people in the crowd who saw Jesus raise Lazarus, says that from the dead. Okay, there are those who had seen miracles there in the crowd. But not everybody in the crowd is sympathetic to Jesus. Not all of them are supporters of Jesus. There are Pharisees in the crowd as well. And then there are those who probably are just swept up in the buzz of it all. I mean, you know what it's like. The crowd mentality, sort of the looky-lose. Met a couple more people here. Uh, there's the looky-loose. I mean, think of what happens when there's like an unexpected celebrity siding somewhere. Not everybody knows who they are, what they're about, why they're there, but there's just excitement and a crowd tends to form quickly. So I think all these dynamics are at play as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. One of the things we've got to know here is just obvious, clear as a bell. Jesus is going fully public here fully public. This is the triumphal entry of the Messiah King. He isn't flashy about it. He isn't flamboyant about it. He's not sensationalistic about it. It's not, all right, everyone, I'm the man. You know, I'm the Messiah. Let's cue the music, cue the fireworks. Let's do a big show. It's not like that. This is not Jesus Christ superstar. It's not it. But Jesus is clear. He identifies himself explicitly as the Messiah to the masses for the world. That has been unusual in the Gospels up till now. There's no messianic secret, no more prohibitions, no Jesus doing something saying, don't tell, none of that. It's time now. It is time. It is finally time, and he makes it clear. So Jesus is letting the world know, I'm the Messiah. Even when their human notions, who they think he is, or half right, or misguided, or in some cases, just flat out wrong. So some of the crowds believe that he is the Messiah, kinda. And I'll explain that in a sec. The gospel accounts, I think, taken as a whole, bear that out. 
Uh, they hope that he's a revolutionary. They hope that he's a kind of Messiah. But most have it wrong. And here's why I say that. Listen to the way the passage ends. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And it means like an earthquake stirred. And it's, I mean, it's bumping. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. They had it wrong. <laughs> who is Jesus? They don't really know. And to have it kind of right with a kind of Messiah is to have it wrong. So let's step into Jesus' sandals now. Think about this. What a familiar place for him. What an incredibly familiar place for him. People are either mistaken about the kind of Messiah that he is, or they just think he's a prophet or a teacher. The crowds, despite their excitement and fanfare, have it wrong. <laughs> Who is Jesus? He's a prophet from Galilee. Well, no, no, no. He's a wise teacher. He's, he's a good rabbi. No, no. He's a political Messiah. He's the one who's going to rescue us from oppressive Roman rule. He's a troublemaker. He's demon-possessed. Just, I mean, this is the timeless question of Jesus's mistaken identity. Now, it's a good thing we don't struggle with this. Ha ha. <laughs> we think we know who Jesus is, but do we, right? Or are we all, are, bleh, excuse me, are we all caught up in what we hope or need or want him to be? Now, in this, in stepping into Jesus' shoes in this moment, I want you to imagine the loneliness of our Lord. He has spent three years tirelessly preaching, teaching, discipling, and they still don't get it. I just, I can't imagine how defeating, discouraging, how potentially hopeless this could have felt. Now, did Jesus come to rescue them from oppression? Yes, he did. He did. But he, he has a far bigger rescue in mind than their immediate circumstances, okay? I mean, he's here to shatter the yoke of sin and evil. But Roman oppression, freeing him from that, that's small potatoes. His sights are set on something more grand. But the people can't seem to see or imagine something greater. His rescue plan is beyond ambitious. Listen to this, okay? I'm going to give you some bullet points of Jesus' plan. And this all happens between the triumphal entry and his crucifixion. So this happens in a matter of days, a very condensed time frame, okay? It's Matthew 21 to 27. Listen to all that he does. This is incredible. So he'll cleanse the temple, first order of business, reclaim his house. Uh, he'll curse the fig tree. He'll uh, speak the parable of the talents, right, with the vineyard's uh, owner's son. He gave the parable of the wedding feast. Remember the father throwing the party for his son. Those who are invited, they won't actually come. There's the parable of the talents. He foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. Spocks, talks about whose son is the Christ, speaks about the resurrection, issues the greatest commandment, love God with all of who you are, love your neighbors yourself. He's anointed at Bethany for his death, celebrates Passover, making it abundantly clear that he is the Passover lamb and he washes his disciples' feet. We'll celebrate that on Monday Thursday. Betrayed by Judas, foretells the denial of Peter and he's deserved by the 12 and he's crucified. All in a matter of days. All in a matter of days. So what I want you to hear in this is how Jesus' ministry and his mission accelerate from this point forward. 
the pace I find uh, dizzying. I mean, it literally is a hellacious week, a runaway train bound for glory. Do you know that's what you're signing up for today? Ready to get on that train? We'll find out, right? Let's take a peek, uh, and we're drawn to a close here. Let's take a peek behind the scenes of the fanfare of Passover week. I want to take a look at what would have been happening behind closed doors, beyond just uh, all the crowds and all that's going on, because it's easy to focus on that. Here's what an average Jewish family would have been doing during that week. They would have been selecting and preparing a Paschal lamb, that pure, that perfect sacrifice that they made each year as a reminder of when God delivered them from the land of Egypt, right? That's the whole point of Passover, when they were freed. What people don't know in this story is that as they've been preparing for Passover, God has already beaten them to the punch. The Paschal lamb... (laughs) has already arrived in Jerusalem, and that Paschal Lamb is Jesus. Jesus is actually preparing them. It's not the other way around. So Palm Sunday begins with momentum. I want you to get the sense of that. It begins with fanfare. It begins with adulation. It begins with all these amped up, very human hopes and very human desires. But as this week wears on, all that fades. Jesus is surrounded by fewer and fewer people. You want to talk about isolation. Think of this. He enters into this week knowing that he will walk. I will, I'll make this contention. The loneliest path that any person in human history has ever walked. As Holy Week wears on, our Lord will be profoundly alone, experiencing a level of isolation. I don't think we can imagine. I don't think we can conceive of. And yet... Jesus still chooses to enter Jerusalem and to set his face like flint towards the cross. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. And that's why we must begin here today. So I just have one basic question for us today, for all of us, for Holy Week, okay? Will you follow Jesus this week? Will you follow Jesus this week? let me speak to that a little bit. You know, will we take the journey with him this week? Will we inhabit the story? It's another way of really saying that. Uh, Will we step out of the crowd, right? Will we dare to stand out and stand up and maybe say yes to him at those moments where uh, in the story where it's invited? Will we engage the suffering and the subsequent glory that follows this week? Because you don't get one without the other in the gospel. You just don't. Will you allow uh, the rawness, the loose ends, uh, the deep abiding questions within our hearts, which we all carry, will you let those be part of the journey that is Holy Week? Or will we kind of just treat this like any other week? Maybe we show up for service, maybe we don't. Eh, like any other week. So to see the real Jesus, I mean, you just have to walk with him. You have to. And here's a promise I can make to you. If you leapfrog from today to Easter Sunday, uh, if you skip out on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and just uh, just not up for that journey, I, I promise you, you will cheat no one but yourself. Truly. Now, can you leapfrog from here to Easter? Sure you can. Absolutely. Will you miss the good stuff? Yes, you will. You will. So walk with Jesus this week. Follow him, shadow him, inhabit the story, 
that is Holy Week. Um, because, I mean, this is God's story, right? It's his story. And the climax of human history, and think about this, it really is. All that happens this week in the crucifixion and the resurrection, all that, it is the climax of human history. And we, all y'all, which I'm pointing at you now, are invited to be a part of it. Not as bystanders, but as his disciples. Okay? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.